You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley, a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, a web blogger at the Washington Center for Equitable Growth, and a fellow of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Prior to this, he served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Department of Treasury in the Clinton administration. Holding a Ph.D. from Harvard University, his latest book is titled Slouching Towards Utopia, an Economic History of the 20th Century. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. J. Bradford DeLong. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm very happy to be here virtually um, in this kind of, I don't suppose we're allowed to call it the metaverse yet, but it feels a lot like the metaverse to me, my life these days. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, so firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Well, born in 1960 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you went off to Harvard to college at 18, took a look around in 1982 at you know the age of 21 and saw an 11% unemployment rate and decided to stay in the university. And I've never left the university, although I have traded Harvard for Berkeley, except for three years or so working for the United States Treasury in the early 1990s. Here at Berkeley, I teach... Um, economic history and macroeconomics. And I've been thinking somebody ought to write this book since 1994. I was thinking maybe I should write this book since 1998. And I have finally buckled down and produced a 605-page book, Slouching Towards Utopia, an Economic History of the 20th Century, which is what I'm here to talk about today. Whoa, 605 pages. That's 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 quite yeah. a quite a write. And there's a lot more on the cutting room floor. Um, I tell you, it could have been much bigger. Um, I'm sure after 605 pages of, of work, you, you've got a lot more thoughts that, that have arisen. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. So like you said, your latest book is titled Slouching Towards Utopia and Economic History of the 20th Century. So I wanted to start by asking you to explain this idea of the economic pie and the significance of the 1870 to 2010 time period. Oh, that's... It's really two or three questions, you know. I mean, the metaphor of the economic pie is a standard one. Um, but, you know, it's not just enough, say, if you were relatively utopian, if you want to create a truly good society. It will not be enough to just bake a sufficiently large economic pie. Um, then you have to slice it equitably. You have to slice it so that it pretty much everybody has, you know, enough. And third, um, you have to taste it. You have to eat it. Um, you have to enjoy it. People must be able to use their wealth and their power to command the attention and assistance for others, um, which is what wealth is. It's social power to command nature and to organize ourselves, um, to use that social power, to use that wealth, to live lives that leave them safe, secure, healthy, and happy. Um and so that's why I start with the metaphor of the economic pie, that it's not just one task, the task of production. There are other two tasks, the tasks of distribution and utilization as well. And tell us about the significance of this 1870 to 2010 time period. Oh, 
Oh, oh, well, before 1870, um, before 1870, there was simply absolutely no chance that humanity would be able to bake a um, sufficiently large economic pie to even think of everybody or pretty much everybody having enough. Um, back then, humanity was so poor and infant mortality was so high um, that, say, about a third of women wound up without surviving sons. And under conditions of high patriarchy, you, if you don't have a surviving son, and if you're female, and often if you're male too, you have no social power, should you be lucky enough you know, to live to your old age. And so back before 1870, technology was advancing so slowly, and population pressure was so great because of this you know, imperative to have a son who will survive and outlive you if you want to have anything like a good life when you're old, that population always ran up against the limits of subsistence, making humanity extremely poor. So the only way that even some people could have enough was by becoming members of an elite, running a force and fraud domination and exploitation game against everybody else and elbowing other potential members of the elite out of the way. And that's definitely not something that can ever be even a semi-utopia as far as society is concerned. So, as I see it, you present a, a rather pessimistic take on the, the current state of affairs in the book. Um, you state that, quote, Our ancestors would have presumed we would have used such powers to build utopia, but it was not so. When 1870 to 2010 ended, the world saw um, instead saw global warming, economic depression, uncertainty and inequality, and the broad rejection of the status quo. So the way I see it, um, there really is no no such thing as, as utopia. There'll there'll always be some better hypothetical world and, and some you know problems in ours. Um, but to someone in 1870, the world we have today um, in the develop in the de in the developed world with practically no starvation, ultra low child mortality, high life expectancy, and just the daily luxuries that even the poorest Americans enjoy, like the ability to go to a grocery store or to access all of humanity's knowledge via the internet, would seem utterly utopian. Um, so can you tell us why, in spite of the miraculous yeah, improvement that, in living standards? That is, in fact, the great puzzle. You, know, yeah. you go back to 1600, and you have Tommaso de Camposella in his City of the Sun, and Francis Bacon in his, you know, The New Atlantis, looking back at how much technological progress there was between 1500 and 1600, and saying, wow, we only need another century or two of this, and we will truly be able to build something really utopian. Um, to, as Francis Bacon put it, to the enlargement of the human empire and the effecting of all things possible. And even as late as 1870, right, there are people who said if technological progress continues, well then, very soon in historic time, we'll certainly have more than enough to have a utopian standard of living. And people said the major thing keeping... um you know, say there's the problem of baking a sufficiently large enough pie that is on the way to being solved. Then there's the problem of equitably slicing it and of, you know, tasting it, the problems of distribution and of utilization. And those problems of distribution and utilization appear to be large precisely because there isn't enough for everyone. And so a lot of energy is going into the force and fraud exploitation and domination machine um, that people tearing each other down and taking stuff rather than cooperating and building each other up. All of that will be gone by our day. 
Um, so would have said Edward Bellamy in the 1880s. So definitely said Marx and Engels starting in the 1940s. So said John Maynard Keynes in 1930, that avarice, precaution, and usury would no longer have to be our gods you know, come 2020. And lo and behold, here we are. And certainly we are now have the technology which is capable of allowing us to bake a tremendously large economic pie, one far beyond the size of those that every previous century would have thought would be necessary for utopia. But somehow the problems of distribution and utilization, the problems of slicing and tasting the pie, that those have pretty much completely flummoxed us. They flummoxed us throughout 1870 to 2010. They continue to flummox us today. Okay, that's that's a really interesting point. Um, this point about, you know, we have a large enough pie, but are we slicing it equitably enough? And the way I see it... Um, the, the, the real problem doesn't come down to, are we slicing it equitably enough? It's that, does everyone have the chance to come and eat, you know, their, their share of this pie? Um, so, you know, by and large, with the exception of people with physical and mental disabilities, poverty in the United States is, is a result mainly of poor choices. Uh, a study from the Brookings Institute found that there are only three things an American needs to do to make it to the middle class. One, finish high school. Two, get a full-time job. And three, wait until the age of 21 to get married and have children. The research shows that American adults who followed these three simple rules almost always um, join the middle class. Now, of course, people have different circumstances growing up, but, you know, just as an example of my own life, my parents, like millions of immigrant families, grew up in extreme poverty in India as defined by the UN, a situation that was right. much worse than, say, virtually any American, and they're now, you know, mm -hmm. very doing very well for themselves in the West. And mm -hmm. all that to say mm -hmm. um, is that for me, in a society with as much social mobility, um, economic inequality isn't, it isn't so much a moral consideration anymore. It's not how are we slicing this pie? Um, and insofar as poverty is caused now primarily by intentional choices, I wouldn't see, um, the, our factor in evaluating the extent to which our society is utopian is are we slicing it equitably as does everyone have a chance, um, you know, by making good choices to come and get a part of this pie? So would you disagree? And if so, why? Well, you know, um, do you know Larry Kudlow? Yeah. Nope, I'm not not familiar with his work. No, do you know of Larry Kudlow, kind of big Trumpian economist, um, rich, well-respected guy? I think um, I've heard the name. I'm, Trumpian circles. I'm, I'm not sure uh, exactly what Wrongly, his work is. strongly right-wing. Um, do you know Bill Bennett? You know, um, uh, former secretary of... What was Bennett? Um... Bennett was the former secretary of um, Bennett in the Reagan administration. What was he? Um, oh, uh, secretary um, of, of education. Yeah, secretary of education in the from 1985 to 1980 under President Ronald Reagan. Yep. A huge booster of the idea that people need to be trained to be properly moral in America. And that it's the failures of parents to train their children to be properly moral and the failure of society to um, support and properly reward and incentivize people um, that does indeed cause most of the poverty in the world today. Um, Bill Bennett, it developed, has lost perhaps $10 million betting in Las Vegas. And, you know, he was claiming all the time that, no, he was about roughly even in his gambling habit and he had it under control. 
And it was finally just when this came out that he had taken the fortune he had been lucky enough to earn by writing lots and lots of books, the subtext of which was that poverty is the fault of the poor, um, that he managed to dissipate two-thirds of that into the hands of the bosses of Las Vegas, and only when his wife was enabled by this becoming public to stage an intervention um, was he able to quit. Um, Larry Kudlow was a huge and heavy cocaine addict for quite a long time, completely uncontrolled, um, blew millions of dollars on it, um, and yet managed to pull out of it, managed to beat his addiction, and to continue to be a respected kind of right-wing politician and economist. Um, they both made very, very bad choices, hugely bad choices. Um, they are still relatively rich and kind of relatively respected. Is there a possibility that an awful lot of the people who are doing well in America have made similarly bad choices, but have been extremely lucky in who their friends are, who their families are, and who their situation, who their situations are? Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone is disputing, you know, the fact that there is some, some sort of thing is, you know, there. I thought you were dispute. I thought no, you were um, disputed. I mean, it, I, I mean, you can think about it this way. Say I'm born and I happen to be seven feet tall. Um, you know, I can make a lot of mistakes, but you know, odds are I'll still probably end up, I, I can probably end up in the NBA just because I, I happen to be born seven feet tall. Um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's bad that, that, um, you know, there's, there's no, there's no sort of um, place for my own choices in in becoming wealthy or, or poor. So I mean, it's sort of like that that opposite, right? If 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 making bad decisions bad deci making bad decisions doesn't always lead to poverty, right? Um, but there are yes. making good decisions leads to wealth, that sort of thing. Um, and what is it that makes one able to make, predisposes one to make good decisions? given that people with every advantage like Bill Bennett and like Larry Kudlow um, wind up making very bad decisions, wind up making decisions that if they had not had a proper, had not had the right wing social network and talents and support they had would have given, would have put them at the very bottom of the social pyramid. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. There are obviously people are born under different circumstances. You know, some people are born tall, some people are born short, some people are born rich, some people are born poor, some people are born smarter, some people are, you know, born, you know, with, mm -hmm. with different gifts and abilities. So, you know, uh, that's, that's just a, a fundamental truth of life that people are born in different situations and, and have different lives. Um, my, my only point is that for almost everybody in America, with some obvious exceptions, Making simple good choices, you know, finishing high school, getting a full time job. And, and like I said, um, examples like my parents and so many immigrant families that, you know, were raised in extreme poverty that came to this country with, you know, virtually no money, uh, just the clothes on their back and were still able didn't to they, make didn't it. Didn't they come it well. with something else, uh, something other than money? Um, no, vir virtually nothing. I mean, you know, m many of the immigrant families that I grew up around didn't even have an education. They started off working in, in fast food restaurants. Um, did they have, were they literate? Um, yes. Okay. So but what e was even literacy in, rate? What e was literacy rate in India 40 years ago? By, I can't tell you that, but I mean, e even insofar as they were literate, their grasp of the language was tenuous at best. Yeah. I mean, they're very far down in the American pyramid because they have very limited English proficiency. Um, yeah. Um, that's the kind of thing that erodes, it gets eroded over the course of a single generation. 
um, while actually having actually having chosen the right parents um, in a sense of being embedded in a family social network that will encourage and reward kind of good choices um, is a, an extremely powerful asset for anyone to have when they're born and not something that they have done anything to produce. Right. I've made a huge amount of good choices in my life, and I owe a great deal of that to the fact that my parents brought me up right, um, largely, and that their parents largely brought them up right. And that means that I'm sitting here in Berkeley, California, with an extremely nice house and have a very comfortable, almost utopian life. Um, and to say that I, in some sense, deserve this or that it is not in any sense, a social problem that income and wealth inequality in the United States is so high because everyone who makes good choices can be at least middle class, um, misses the fact that there are lots of situations which predispose people to make substantially bad choices. Um, you know, it's relatively easy to make mistakes that wind up not meaning that one doesn't finish high school or winds up pregnant at 19. Um, Okay, um, and so that that sort of brings me then next to the the economic standpoint here. So I would, I mean, the the, the next thing I would say that okay, so far we've been talking about poverty and and you know what the the situations that might predispose people to make choices that that lead them. Well, to Well, we've in, been talking poverty. we've been talking about whether large degrees of income and wealth inequality are a feature or a bug in a society. Okay, um, um, you've, be, you've been saying you've been saying it is a feature. Yes, because the poor in America. Um, are poor because they've made bad choices. By and large. And so in some sense, they deserve to be poor. By and large. Um, I'm scratching my head and trying to say that maybe you should go back a step and say, what is it about a society that produces a situation in which lots of people wind up making bad choices? You know, it's the question of if you discover that people are falling off the trail into the Grand Canyon, um, should you say, well, that's fine. Um, they were clumsy. Or should you say we should be installing some guardrails? Okay. Uh, well, how how would you view that that distinction then? To what extent do you think that the people that in America do become permanently poor? To what extent do you think it is the the split between um, you know predisposition factors that well, are you know, beyond their control and think, factors that I are within their think, control? I don't think that poverty really is a feature. You know, I don't think that any of us deserves um to be slotted into any particular piece in some kind of you know um sociological pyramid and hierarchy of relative wealth um i think that we have enormous technological capabilities in this civilization and i think none of us have done more than the teeny teeny weeniest bit you know to produce them that if you want to think of the person um, who has actually done the most to create our immense technological wealth, you know, it's probably Nikola Tesla, um, who got maybe 10 years worth of, who because Nikola Tesla was there and in the right place at the right time, we got important parts of the electricity industry back when it was a leading sector um, 10 years early, you know, that, that essentially doubled the productivity of 5% of the economy. Um, and so maybe 3% of our total wealth today um, is here because of Nikola Tesla, that we would be maybe a year and a half behind 
where we are now in terms of economic growth, if not for Nikola Tesla. Um, does that mean that Tesla and his heirs in some sense deserve to own 3% of everything? You know, I would say not. Um, does that mean that Tesla, even though he had substantial psychological problems, um, deserved to have a good life and a better old age than he managed to have? You know, I would say yes. Um, I would say that we have the social, the technological powers to make a utopia. And to say in response to the fact that our world is manifestly not, um, well, the poor deserve it because they made bad choices. That seems to me to miss the point pretty completely. Okay. Um, but then I, I think that's where we sort of run into another issue, which is that just because you're here, you're breathing, you're entitled to other the, the value that other people produce. None of us produces anything, right? Um, suppose we were to drop you into the Sahara, into the Sierra Nevadas today, um, without any tools. Um, what would be likely to happen to you? You would produce no value. You would be highly likely to die in a week, right? That too, um, yeah. All product production is social production. And some of us are lucky enough to find ourselves placed in slots in the division of labor in which we can contribute um, a lot more than others to the total amount that we're producing as kind of a species. And all of us can produce something, can do something useful. And some of us are very lucky that the particular slots we find ourselves in, in the social division of labor, are kind of like standing on the corner of, um, you know, Park Street and 57th, covered with glue as the money glow, um, um, blows by, you know, and um, some of us are not, you know. Um, so I think that the whole who deserves it framework um is completely inadequate when talking about questions of distribution um, what we observe today is that the distribution produced by the market and the social insurance system is a lot less equal than it was in the united states in the 1960s with respect to class and a lot more equal than it was in the 1960s with respect to gender and race um and that those are both things to think about and that huge degrees of inequality are kind of inconsistent with the idea that we're trying to build a utopia here. Okay. Um, so then why, why worry about inequality as opposed to poverty? Um, so if oh, we, as we a... worry about, oh, you worry, you worry about poverty an immense amount. Um, so... but poverty is not only absolute than relative. It's relative as well. That there is a huge, huge difference between poverty in America today and poverty in the America in 1870, when most people were not sure where their 2,000 calories a day were going to become next, come to come from next year or even next week, and where about a fourth of the population went to bed sufficiently hungry they could think of for nothing else, um, or of little else. And there is a huge difference between poverty in America today and the status of the bottom 500 million. In the world today, who still live largely like our pre-industrial ancestors, um, for whom the dominant thing they are thinking about every day is to spend some considerable time thinking about how hungry they are and how it would be nice to have more food and what should they do to try to accomplish it. Why, even in the 1880s in the United States, then the richest country in the world, um, if you give someone in the working class extra income, 
you know, they spend 40% of it on extra calories, you know, not on tastier nutrients, not on more food preparation, but simply they are sufficiently hungry that they spend 40% of what any extra they earn on extra calories, which shows a fairly strong sign of substantial hunger. Um, we've managed to largely banish that. Um, our problems are those of activities and carbohydrate and salt regulation. Um, rather than near starvation as far as the food system is concerned. Um, but that we've managed to great the great accomplishment of severely reducing absolute poverty doesn't mean that relative poverty doesn't remain a significant problem in terms of getting people to live lives in which they are safe, secure, uh, healthy, and feel happy. Okay, but if society continues to progress sort of in the direction that we've been going and the standard of relative poverty gets higher and higher so that even those that are living in relative poverty are richer and richer and richer, then, you know, we can expect that someday the, the people that we view today as middle class, you know, and the generations of the future will be viewed as the relative poor. Um, and so do you, and do you think this is a, this is a problem? How? Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Why, if, if we as a, a society can, can move towards increasing that standard of relative poverty through economic growth, through growing the size of the pie, um, then, mm -hmm. then why should we be worried that some people have more than others? Um, so we shouldn't be worried that some people have experienced substantial relative poverty today because at some time in the future, their descendants will be rich. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm simply saying that if, you know, why, why is that? That's what I mean. It's sort of this is the real issue here, poverty or inequality, because if we can get rid of poverty, I mean, countries like Belarus and Afghanistan have very little economic inequality, some of the, among the lowest in the world, but you know, they're, they're, they have very high levels yeah. of poverty. So is our yeah. issue here actually that some people have more than others or that some people don't have enough? Well, that the the big issue is that the big issue is always absolute poverty. Um, but if you have a society in which there are a whole bunch of people who, whose lives are significantly um, less happy, safe, secure, and healthy than those of others in the society, and if you could alleviate that by taking some of what you got to think is kind of potential surplus wealth from some, um, and using it to give others more social power and more social voice so that they can better accomplish that, those purposes. You know, that seems to me to be kind of quite a good thing, right? One of the fundamentals of economics, you know, indeed one of the fundamentals of the utilitarian philosophy out of which economics grew, um, was the decline, the belief in the declining marginal utility of wealth and consumption. Um, that if you're more than so rich, it's hard to imagine that spending even more money on your own consumption um, is going to make you any happier or better off or give you any higher utility. And thus, at the very basis of economics, there's an extremely strong drive to think that um, a well-functioning economy should produce a relatively egalitarian income distribution. You know, because if not, you're wasting a whole bunch of resources. Um, resources that could be used to encourage and support the human flourishing of the relatively poor are instead being wasted on things that, you know, the rich truly do not care that much about. 
Okay, but the vast majority of the wealth of the richest Americans is held as equity in private businesses or elsewhere invested. So the uber wealthy are the driving force in investment, especially angelist investment. They are? Um, so all the, the, the investments from the ultra rich were behind they Apple, are? Facebook, Google, and these companies drastically improved the lives of everyone in America. So, I mean, everyone, I mean, even your employers at UC Berkeley the rely rich? in part on oh, hold it. donations. Hold it. Apple is not an incredibly valuable product value chain productive operation because the rich of a generation ago invested a fortune in it building up its physical capital stock right apple is entrepreneurial wealth is engineering wealth is scientific wealth is user experience wealth um is the collective product of all of those who have worked in apple you know almost all of whom are solidly middle class you know, none of whom started out you know, as potential plutocrats. You know, Apple had no early stage Silicon Valley, you know, um, right, Silicon Valley mega rich investors. Um, it's an engineering project. It's not a capital accumulation project. Um, to say that you know the rich are a very valuable social resource because they are the drivers of capital accumulation, and lo and behold, we have Apple Computer. That is so far wrong as an empirical description of reality that it kind of, you know, it, it flummoxes me. Um, that yes, you could say back in the late 19th century, um, when the principal things that the world needed was more physical capital, when he needed more ports, more railroads, more factories, more nitrogen for farms. Um, back then there was a very strong argument that you wanted to have a relatively unequal distribution of income. Um, plus, you very much wanted to have a wealthy class that um, held strongly to the Protestant ethic, you know, that believed that conspicuous consumption was a big no-no, precisely because then they would take their profits from the past year and the past decade and reinvest them, and so boost the world economy in a situation in what the world economy needed most was to ramp up its capital output ratio quickly. And so a higher share of investment in world product was an enormous, um, an enormous benefit. And in fact, if you go and read John Maynard Keynes's economic consequences for our grandchildren, you know, you will find that he specifically makes that argument you know, that the rich of the Victorian and the Edwardian periods were an enormous social asset to Great Britain precisely because they accumulated, they invested, and then they did, um, and you know, they did not consume, um, rather lived lives of sober Victorian respectability. Um, that was then, you know, today we have a world in which as best as we can see, the long-term real interest rate on simple accumulation is extremely low. You know, that the world is not terribly capital short. You know, the difficulty is finding actual physical investments to make. You know, what the world seems to be short of is risk bearing and entrepreneurship, you know, and engineering genius, um, things that have a very, very tenuous connection um, to what is being done by those who have managed to do to, do, to be luckiest in the past generation in terms of building up um, financial wealth. Okay, um, so I mean, there's there's so much more to to explore here, but uh -huh. for today we're unfortunately running out of right. time. So okay. for now, I'll say All thank right. you so much for joining us on the show. Okay. Uh, it's sure. a real it's interesting been my conversation. Great pleasure. Yep, it's been my great pleasure. Okay. All right.
Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.